thank you for volunteering. This is our second episode of our of our American Association of Food Safety and and Public Health Veterinarians uh, channel. We're doing uh, this YouTube channel as well as a podcast. And I'm Dr. Donna DeBonis. I'm the president of the organization. Dr. Catherine Waters is the executive vice president, which also translates into her being our, our staff member, our paid staff member, our only paid staff member uh, that is running the association administrative way. We, we have a paid uh, member who, who handles our newsletter and that's another story and hopefully we will have them on at some point. But we are hitting the ground running with this channel. I have five interviews total scheduled so far uh, through the month of January and fe now February. So I'm, I'm really excited. Everybody wants to share about how they got into this place in their life where uh, veterinarians are working either in public health or food safety. Uh, and that's how we all come together in this particular organization. But Catherine, you know, I always love to start this, um, this uh, interview with really the the basic question of why, why did you want to be a veterinarian? Because you know what? Now we're talking about a whole bunch of things that have gone on in our lives up till now, but it, it all comes down to why. What was it? Were you one of those kids that were like, I'm always going to want to be a veterinarian? It was, yeah, it was on my radar. This was, no, uh-uh. Okay, so... Uh, where where did you grow up? I grew up in Denver, Colorado. Which is where you are now. Which is where I am, because when I retired from the University of Minnesota, I came home. Oh, very cool. And uh, so, no, I really wasn't a, I want to be a veterinarian from the time I was a kid. I was actually in my probably 19, 20 years old. Mm -hmm. I was working full time at a big bank in downtown Denver and um, just had a high school degree mm -hmm. and um, had she uh, thought I wanted to be an anthropologist. Oh, I loved anthropology. OK, sure. And, yeah, and was actually taking some night classes. But uh, I also had a three year old mm -hmm. when I was 19. I guess he was two. OK. So, a busy household and as I looked uh, at staying on in the world of banking it became obvious that if you wanted to ascend the ladder you needed a uh, MBA okay sure so having a high school degree MBA six years so then you start to think is this really what I want to do do I want to invest six years to get a business degree so that I can stay in the banking world and I enjoyed it it was a good job mm -hmm. but not necessarily where I wanted to I looked at my future but then I think I'm a very kind of practical logical person and I thought about anthropology and out in the field studying different cultures and things which sounded very interesting mm -hmm. two-year-old and you know, that's going to be really hard bit. to find uh, childcare. <laughs> it's, it flavors yeah. your decisions. And um, actually, I had a, a, I still remember, I had a very interesting career pathway conversation 
with a young man who had recently graduated with his MBA uh, and I just started working at the bank and we rode the bus together down to downtown. Well, okay, so he would have been able to give you this, the, the information about it. Sure. And it told me, but the most interesting thing was he really had wanted to be a veterinarian. Oh. In his family, okay. his family went into business. And my impression from what he told me is you are going to get your MBA because mm -hmm. that's the path to a business career. But again, it started me thinking about alternatives. And, you know, I, I like, this sounds bad, but I kind of like animals better than people if I'm going to choose something to work with on an ongoing basis. And oh, gosh, let me tell you, this is a constant refrain. I think, the same I think thing. all of the veterinarians like animals yes. better than people. Yes. <laughs> we like so, other veterinarians. Yes. Yeah, that's a thing. Okay. As a whole, I think veterinarians are a really good group of people. Yeah. So I've that I chose a profession that I in general have liked the people, but I do did like working with the animals and I like mystery and clues and solving things. Mm -hmm. Oh, isn't veterinary? Oh, a lot of detective work. Yeah. Detective and, work. And sometimes so, I feel yes. like my clients are getting, they think they're getting grilled because I have so many questions. And sometimes I notice they, they're just like, you know, why? And I, I'm just trying to get down to the bottom of it. Hang yes. with me on this. And, but yeah, that's exactly what it is. And, and, and it's, and it's funny. I think um, now when I have more free time and I kind of find myself listening to true crime podcasts and watching stuff like that on TV, I realize it's because I really do enjoy the mystery, particularly That's if right. it's a medical mystery. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And, and I'm really pretty good at human medicine too. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yes. there you were thinking about your options and you know what I, uh, uh, this is, I gotta, I gotta be honest with you, Catherine, I, I have just enjoyed working with you the past couple of years as I've come into this position of uh, being president and I we we spend time chatting and catching up and you came out and visited but to hear you talk about that time where you were thinking to yourself these are my options these are the the um, the things I can look at going forward that's pretty um, amazing particularly when you did have a, a child a, a youngster um, being fairly young yourself, 19 years old, and a lot of people would have felt overwhelmed. But here you were, you were looking at it all like, oh, these are my options. These are things I can do. What do I want to do? The world is my oyster. Um, so that that's great. That's, a, that's the kind of um, attitude that really gets you through veterinary medicine because it, it it's, it takes a lot and it's a long it's a long haul so you, long haul, you I was you know how fortunate was I mm -hmm. and I probably didn't realize it as much as I do now mm -hmm. I was a Colorado resident I lived in a state with one of the best veterinary right in the country yeah. that was right up the road in Fort Collins 60 miles away mm -hmm. so, you know that that was very fortuitous Yes. Yes. And, Likewise. Uh, yeah. So I picked up stakes and uh, what you so you went right up to Fort Collins, Collins to do your pre-vet. I moved to Fort Collins to do pre-vet. Yep, I did. And too. 
because I wasn't one of the, I have wanted to be a veterinarian since I was a kid. I didn't know a lot of veterinarians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and back animals, then they were, but very, I had, yeah, they were vigilant about you going out working with all kinds of animals. You yeah. had small animal, large animal, or whatever, and yeah. yeah, they really wanted to see that experience. So, how did you how did you attain that work study? Oh, okay. So it was the work study. Okay. I was qualified for work study. And the first thing I did is I went to the veterinary school and said, what can I do? I clean kennels. Oh, sure. So I clean kennels. And then I think I graduated into cleaning and stocking surgery. Mm -hmm. And then I moved into uh, working in radiology. Oh, okay. Then that led to working in radiation biology. And that kind of tied in, and I did um, actually quite a bit of work also in molecular biology. In fact, one of my, one of the research projects I was on, we looked at mammary cancer. Um, So we were using mammary cancer in mice, but we were also Mm -hmm. isolating messenger RNA, which, you know, back then was such a different side. Yeah. One of the things I did was looking at messenger RNA and that whole world of cellular biology. So, well, it's a real advantage. I I thought my experience was, yeah, I I feel that's a real advantage being at the vet school, seeing the professors, they get to see you. They may or may not be on the admission committee, but the point is they can also write you good letters of recommendation and they have, um, and they have a lot, they themselves have a great reputation because they are professors there. Right. So uh, that's that's uh, uh, pretty much the way to do it, if possible, to get in and do pre-vet at the school where you're going to be at, is yeah. it gets you a little bit ahead. And that actually was helpful for me as well. Um, so once you um, you did your, your pre-vet, what, what did you um, get your degree in? Did you get one in a bachelor's? Because it wasn't required. You just no, but um, I, I only did pre-vet for three years, but then mm-hmm. when I started taking veterinary classes, I had enough hours. So I ended up with the bachelor's uh, BS. In veterinary science? Yeah. So, no, in biology. Oh, okay. In biology, sure. In biology. And then, and then the veterinary degree. And, and I, um, you know, I think I, I went in naively into veterinary school, sort of having read James Harriet books. <gasps> All creatures right. all on television uh-huh. and thinking I was going to be, you know, the everything that, and I have to say it didn't take me long, uh, especially being in the clinics all the time to really decide that um, small animal medicine and surgery was of more interest to me. I really liked internal medicine. Um, and the time when you went through, so that would have been um you, you graduated in 74 79 79 okay so you got in in uh in 75 four. okay when you got in back then uh what um would you say the ratio was as far as uh women to men as vet students i think there were 11 or 12 out of 90 95 yeah, under twelve women. Yeah, it was yeah. it was the exception to the rule. Mm-hmm. And very interesting seeing how much our profession has changed. 
So much so, yeah. Um, you know, I would say probably back then there was almost equal emphasis on large animal and small animal. Very much, right. Not much emphasis on anything other than large animal or small animal. I don't think it would have even crossed my mind that poultry medicine was an option. Um, and coming from- Oh, I don't, I don't know. We that. didn't. Yeah. I'm not even sure we ever had a pig on campus. We probably did, but you know, poultry mm -hmm. medicine, swine medicine, we really didn't cross that. And I, I had no concept of uh, anything public health oriented. To me, it was either you do large animal, small animal, or mixed practice in the store. Mm -hmm. That's it. Oh yeah. I don't remember anything that opened up a door in terms of going down the route of public health. Um, uh, in in vet school it was very clinical oriented and you yourself actually had a special interest in surgery so that leads me to graduation you is that when you decided to get into the internship you applied for an internship I did I I knew it would be a good idea to have further training I think at that time I thought I might want to do a residency and so you know if you do an internship you leave that door open again we go back to options Mm -hmm. I was very fortunate. I ended up at the University of Georgia, which was an excellent college with really good faculty mm -hmm. and load. And so, uh, and I'd never lived in the Southern United States before. So here we got 14 months in Athens, Georgia, and, um, you know, a different population of people, different caseloads. I absolutely was... I had, I, you know, we learned parasitology, right? Yeah. But it was all, I mean, in Colorado, we had no fleas. Mm -hmm. Puppies and kittens got roundworms. No significant hookworms. I'd never seen a whipworm. Heartworm, no. Right. You know, the mosquito population is very low in Colorado. Heart, we have heartworm disease. Georgia had it all. Had, yeah. Had yeah. it all. Yeah, the, the oh, yeah, warm so. weather and then the, the insect and parasite population yes. just explodes. And yes. that was during the time when it was um, really uh, tricky to uh, medicate, to prevent heartworm, um, treat it was chancy. So there were a lot of uh, really difficult challenges then. But but here you were in, in interning. Um, in surgery and and so it was surgery, medicine and surgery medicine and surgery so yeah. as time went on with that you said the 14 months what what showed up next on your horizon as a choice you know i decided to go into practice and okay so i um took a position in the portland oregon area Oh, okay. Yeah. I have family in the Pacific Northwest. And so I took a position in the Portland, Oregon area. And um, then a position opened up back in Colorado in Boulder. So I came home to Colorado and uh, spent nine years in a very nice um, AHA practice in Boulder. And then I kind of got a bug in my ear about acupuncture. Oh, sure. All of that. I believe so, the um, Association of Holistic Veterinarians was just starting up around that time, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The American Association, I think, of 
Oh, no, it was IVOS, the International Veterinary Acupuncture Society. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they offered a four-month acupuncture in animal certification class that I took. Um, and by that time, you were in small animal practice? I was had been in small animal practice for about nine years. Okay. And, um, so I was practicing acupuncture kind of on the side, probably more on my um, technicians, pets, and things like that. Uh, but I, at that point in time, by that period in time, the two-year-old was now an 18-year-old, and he had moved out of the house. And so, you know, it was a different, you know, chapter of my life, and I decided to move to Los Angeles to go to vet to, I took a job with uh, somebody who did veterinary acupuncture, moved to Los Angeles and started going to ac- human acupuncture school at night. So what year was that? 89, 1989. It was in 89 and you were in Los Angeles? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I was in uh, Riverside. Ah, uh, okay. I never got out to Riverside because the job with the veterinary practice that I started with didn't work out. You know, that happens at times. You take a job and mm. sometimes things just don't work out as planned. And so I ended up doing relief work yeah. here. And I traveled all over LA, but I didn't get out to Riverside. Um, but that uh-huh. worked for me because I was studying acupuncture at night doing relief work during the day. Um, and I was able to bank some money because the acupuncture college that I was going to in downtown Los Angeles had a program where you could study abroad. So they had uh, some links with other uh, acupuncture schools or what we would say schools of traditional Chinese medicine mm-hmm. in China. And so after doing relief work for a little over a year, and, and this was also at a time where you were studying human acupuncture, yeah. right? Yeah. So here we have this crossover very easily because as veterinarians, we understand how humans work as well. And yeah, and they took a lot, lot of the story. acupuncture charts and things and, you know, just sort of transposed them onto animals. I mean, we're bipeds, so they're quadrupeds, but the rest of, you know, everything inside is pretty mm-hmm. much same. Pretty much the same. Yeah. So yeah. So I ended up moving, or actually I, I didn't move. I put everything in storage and um, I thought I was going to China for three months. And there was also a veterinary acupuncture class that was advertised. And um, so one of my classmates in acupuncture school had horses and he was really interested in acupuncture for animals. So anyway, we, uh, his wife was working and, but he had recently retired. So we did veterinary acupuncture for three weeks outside of Beijing. And then I moved to a small town. No, that's funny to say in China, it's considered a smaller city, only 6 million people. Oh. That's the size size of San Antonio. I just want to say that I know that fact because I was in San Antonio for a few years. Yeah. Six million. Yeah. Yes. So um, anyway, I studied for a couple of months, 
uh, had the opportunity to travel and do some lecturing in, in China. So I ended up staying for four months. And then I met a number of Americans over there that had come over to teach in Chinese universities. And you know, my son was independent. He moved out of the house. My stuff was in storage. I got a job and stayed for two years. <laughs> and it's all, and you know what, when you think about it, it, it really is about the fact that veterinary medicine just provides so many opportunities. It's a broad base of knowledge. And here you find yourself <laughs> teaching veterinary, in veterinary school in, in China. Oh, okay, yeah. so yeah. so at that point, that two years, and you got to travel, I assume you were able to go around and, and see some really fantastic things. And uh, that, that part I have to admit to you is, is, a, is really a divergent for me because I didn't do any traveling until I was uh, in the army when I was in my 50s. So yeah. you got to go out and do traveling based on the fact that you were just following your veterinary dreams. Then what brought you back home? You know, um, I've been gone for two years. Um, working at a Chinese university, you get a room uh, and a small stipend. But I kept, you know, I had my stuff in storage, just the lodge practicalized. I had my stuff in storage. I was paying for U.S. insurance and I was draining my savings account. Oh, sure. Oh, and so, yeah. So, okay. <laughs> you know, and, you know, after two years, it was it was time to come home. So I came home and um, then went back into small animal practice. And uh, although I I thoroughly enjoyed studying the art and science of acupuncture, I chose not to try and go into that I as if because you you probably considered well you could be an acupuncturist and provide that only as a service as your new business let's say uh, I'm sure that crossed your mind but things were things were you know difficult really to get into business at that point we're in the by then you were in the 90s 1990s it was 1991 at that point in time um yeah and uh it was time to come home and make just you know to settle in and um get a job so i i took a, a job in the portland oregon area in, in a small animal practice and then moved across the river to the vancouver washington area and i stayed there in small animal practice until 2005 so mm -hmm. for, for quite a period of time, but, um, to but simultaneously, that, was that when you started teaching as, as well simultaneously in the U S no, I, I, well, I taught at a, I think I did a few classes that I taught at like, um, technician colleges. There was a technician. That, yeah. The vet tech school. Yeah. So I did a little bit of teaching there. Um, because I don't know many veterinarians who are who aren't busy every moment of the day. It's <laughs> it's like if we if there's daylight burning, we're going to figure out something to do. <laughs> well, uh, you know, there are other things I've been I got 
did a lot more gardening and I was remarried at the time. So I had a new marriage going on. And, um, but to go back to China, when you, I, cause I, I would anticipate at some point in the conversation, we're going to go to public health. Sure. I had a really good friend from veterinary school who, um, ended up doing a lot of teaching in the military. And she was a very, she was early on one of the presidents of the American College of Veterinary Preventive Medicine, which I didn't even know anything about. I, yeah. The conversations with her, you know, kind of opened up my eyes to other avenues in veterinary medicine. And also, you know, being in China, Although I kind of wrote a small animal medicine curriculum for them, you know, very basic, but mm -hmm. they didn't have anything like that. But, you know, you realize the critical role of food animals in supporting society, supporting, you know, life. So it kind of got me thinking about leaving private practice with individual animal medicine and morphing into something that was more broadly applicable. So, you know, after being in practice all those years, um, I kind of either looked at clinical pathology or public health. And uh, okay, so uh, just, I, I know for me, my exposure to these other things would have come from veterinary conventions. Um, those were the days where we went in person and traveled to the conferences, I typically would stay fairly close to wherever I was living and be in that region. Um, I uh, also remember getting the, uh, the journal and looking in the back of the journal for jobs, oh, the yeah. JAVMA, and, um, or different articles, particularly the human interest type of articles in the very beginning. Uh, mm -hmm. of the magazine when you turn through. So you'll see some things there. And that kind of opened your mind to, to different things. Well, uh, uh, at this point, you're thinking, okay, public health might be something that will draw me. And that was kind of factored in from your time in China, where you could see that um, the, that was an experience that was already occurring that you were, you were teaching out there. But Public health is is critical. Veterinary public health is critical to the well being of of the uh, the food supply there. Yes. So um, I kind of looked. I did a lot of thinking. I looked at ClinPath programs and I looked at public health programs. And I I think my friend Stephanie gave me a list of contacts within the American College of Veterinary Preventive Medicine and I contacted people and talked to them a little bit and um, decided to go with public health and um, at that point in time a, a number of people mentioned the program in Minnesota as being very strong and I, I didn't know a soul in Minnesota but one of the pools I think there were a couple of things. One, the University of Minnesota on the same campus is nursing, dentistry, medicine, public health, pharmacy, mm. very strong okay. uh, allied health center. And mm. then uh, when I was uh, talking to a couple of the professors in veterinary public health at Minnesota, they mentioned there was a veterinary postdoc fellowship for two years. Now, what does that mean exactly? 
it means that you're basically doing what I don't know that it, it was some people called it a postdoc it kind of morphed into what is now officially the first recognized veterinary public health residency in the United States. Mm -hmm. And um, so it meant that you had two years of employment and as part of that employment, you could get your master's degree. And that was, oh, uh, so there was tuition provided. Oh, so, yeah. okay. As you can imagine, I mean, of course it was a huge drop in salary, but yeah. The fact that I was able to get my MPH and work for two years with enough salary to live mm -hmm. and come out with no debt was a mm -hmm. huge goal. Oh, and yeah, also, that's, that's the best of all worlds. Two years experience, you know, I worked in infection control. I worked in avian influenza pandemic planning. I worked in food safety. I worked with the Farm Bureau doing emergency response planning. My master's project was on methicillin-resistant staph aureus, looking at kids that were diagnosed with it and then testing their pets to see if there was a connection between the two. Mm -hmm. Can we, by the way, find Rich. your, um, your, your uh, thesis written anywhere? No. Um, the master's degree in public health at Minnesota was not a thesis per se, it was a project. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. so, um, it was not one where it was quite, it wasn't as formal. Mm -hmm. And so they're not published or anything. And I probably have a copy of it someplace, but I don't, I don't even know. Hopefully sure. place in some computer file or on one of the, you know, I have a bag of jump drives in my desk. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, that's kind of terrifying to, to see some of the old discs yes. and things that I have. I'm not even I'm not even sure if I can access them, but yes. Yeah. So so yeah. And um and that that uh, two year period of time, did that cement your interest in public health, especially since you got to be involved in so many different types of aspects? Avian influenza was just coming to the forefront, it as was, I recall. Well, 2005 is when high path AI showed up. And so there was huge concern about it coming as a foreign animal disease to the United States and just the um, massive disruptions in the food supply that it would cause. So uh, I think the other thing it gave me a real appreciation of is you know public-private partnerships. So, you know, we worked with regulators with a lot of folks in APHIS. Mm -hmm but we worked with the poultry industry and I always viewed the university as kind of being a neutral sounding ground. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think it provided a good uh, basis. So we got quite a bit of funding from um, USDA to do avian influenza pandemic planning and supply chain planning. And oh, that's fantastic to think about. Disease, too. Yeah, to bring to, to bring up the idea too that um, there were these partnerships that were facilitated, particularly mm -hmm. because um, I'm sure the U university, as like you said, almost like a neutral area that could reach out and bring everybody together, and uh, and there you were right at that hub. Yeah, so it was uh, it was a good experience. I had some really good mentors in Dr. Jeff Bender and Dr. Will Houston. And uh, 
so yeah, that was a good, uh, good experience. And then when my time in the residency was over and I had my MPH, um, I was able to kind of cobble, cobble a university job together from various bits and pieces for the next 10 years. So I worked in the College of Agriculture, I worked in the veterinary school, and I worked in the School of Public Health. So yeah, you know, little um, stuff. When I was looking at, at trying to decide about my master's, I was looking at food safety or public health. And, and um, I was told the public health is, is really the more popular one. There's more jobs available and, and so on. So, but I like food better. It, it, there was really, that, that was a no brainer. I was going for the food. Um, well, you know, I ended up yeah. eventually being, um, the food safety program leader for Minnesota University of Minnesota Extension. So oh sure yeah, there's so much crossover. Extension. I mean, at yeah. one point, I served as a director of public health, and and I didn't have any. Uh, I didn't have my master even my masters at that time. There's just so much crossover, and there's so much mm -hmm. of an understanding. And again, that broad base of knowledge that we come from in veterinary yes. medicine. Yeah. So where were you living then for those ten years that you, as you said, cobbled together these jobs? Uh, I stayed at, at the University of Minnesota. So oh, okay. Living in St. Paul, and then uh, uh, for the last gosh five years, I think I was there. No. I uh, actually became the director of the master's in public health program that I went through. So, oh, okay. And uh, you know what? So that's, that, that's, that's fantastic. I bet that felt like such an accomplishment uh, as well. It, that It yeah. was, yeah. it was. Yeah. And I, this is, you know, this master's program was called an executive MPH. So it was really designed for working mid-career professionals exactly what I did, you know, I was ready to leave practice and go into something else. And I loved my students. They were, you know, very self-motivated. They worked from, I mean, I had doctors, nurses, pharmacists, veterinarians. I had a couple of lawyers. Um, just a, you know, a real variety of students. And I think that was probably advising them and helping them work on their master's projects and get their experience was one of the more rewarding things mm -hmm. I did in that part of my career. I mean, I love being in small animal practice. I, I always find it interesting when people go, well, gosh, did you get burned out? You left because you got burned out. And it's like, no, maybe I would have gotten burned out but I never got burned out. I simply wanted to turn the page and do something different. And our profession gave me the opportunity to do that. Yes, our profession did. Yeah, and the thing that I find kind of interesting too is, uh, is that you taught college and you didn't have any special degree in teaching in order to do that. Mm -hmm. It was simply the fact that your DVM was equivalent to a PhD. And then of course you added on your MPH. But even before that, you had been teaching in China, for example, with your with your DVM. Yeah. So this is a little known fact that we can be teaching colleges at colleges, community college, regular college, vet, veterinary tech college. 
I, I did that as well. And, and, it, and, and you're right, uh, working with students, I think is, is rewarding. I feel because they really do wanna learn, they wanna listen. And, and um, I feel like veterinarians have a tendency to wanna explain things and to educate even when we're talking with our clients. And so it's a natural progression to get into teaching. So what next? Well, so then let's see, 2015 rolled around and, you know, I'd been there at the university for 10 years and I was, um, actually my, my, my mom was in her nineties and was needing more help. Hmm. And, uh, so I was spending quite a bit of time traveling to a small town in Washington state where she lived. And my sister and I really felt like we needed to bring her to Denver mm -hmm. so that we would both be able to care for her. And so um, I thought I was going to quit. You know, it was at that point in time, I thought, well, it's time to quit. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not like I wanted to quit. It just it was time for the next thing. And I don't even remember. But again, it was a conversation with somebody that just planted the seed of like, well, at least the bulk of my job at that point in time was the director directing the MPH program. My students were all over the country. Mm -hmm. um, you know, most of my communication with them was either on the computer or on the phone. Yeah, because it so, so it was an online program. And a lot of the other, and then about 20% of my work in the past two years that I was working was part of the USAID um, response grant. Mm -hmm. And that was to develop public health capacity in uh, Africa and Southeast Asia. So I had started to um, do some traveling to Africa and Southeast Asia. You know, we looked at live bird markets. We looked at public health curriculums. You know, we looked at a lot of those things. So anyway, that was traveling internationally. My students were not on campus. So I asked if they would consider letting me move back to Colorado, but keeping me on part-time. And they were. Oh, brilliant. Okay. Because it was, it was online anyway, right? Exactly. So that until I think 2018. So for three years, I would go back and forth from Denver to the university, maybe four to six times a year. I did some more travel in Asia and I don't remember if I was going to Africa at that point in time. So I continued to do that till 2018 and then um, sort of retired more formally like I'm done at that point in time. Although uh, the opportunity uh, to continue I continued to teach two classes. Um, one was called Public Health as a Team Sport. It was sort of like collaboration among health professions. Okay. Then um, a class called the Principles of Risk Communication. So um, those classes, you know, with uh, with COVID, uh, they're both they were both extremely interactive, very much hands-on classes. So they were discontinued for two years because mm -hmm. COVID, 
Um, but fingers crossed, I'll be going back in May to teach the risk communication class again. Um, and the other thing that happened is when 2015-16 came around, uh, Eric Willingham, who was the executive director of our organization, it's, I think his wife got a job in Germany. Uh-huh, okay. They moved to Germany and he said, I need to be done. So I saw an ad or an announcement or something that uh, this organization was looking for another executive director. I had really, I, when I was at the university, I sat on the food safety advisory committee for six years. Mm -hmm. So I had dipped my toe into organized veterinary medicine, but that had been the extent of it. But um, I thought, well, that, you know, that would be a way for me to continue working in veterinary medicine. Mm -hmm. You know, you're doing it from your own home. Um, it's in support of veterinary public health. Yes, absolutely. So I thought I get well, to interact with other veterinarians. You no, know, I've gone from practice to teaching. I did a lot of projects. I'd never really done anything with organized veterinary med medicine. I'm certainly not a business manager. So I often laugh. I said, if somebody came and sat down with me for four hours and saw the way I work, they'd probably go, oh my God. Well, you're, you, you, you keep you're a really good calendar. I've seen it. Yeah, I can keep a calendar. Yeah. So anyhow, um, I have been doing that since uh, 2017, I think. And, and let me tell you, I sure appreciate it. Well, thank you. Yeah, especially because of the continuity from president to president. And then you're, you're, you have a, a better uh, knowledge of the, 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 in, the inroads of everything happening within this organization. And, as, and also as we partner with other organizations like the uh, ACVPM and, and NAFV, which... Um, are in a way our sister organizations, I they suppose. Are. Yeah, and there's so a lot of overlap. There's a lot of yeah. overlap. And that collaboration has been a really nice development in the past two years. I feel really good about that. I feel like, you know, we're kind of poised to move forward under your leadership and we've got Angela coming on board. And I was very fortunate then that Kelly Vest um, has been, you know, my mentor, you know, if there's ever questions. Yeah, he's great about staying involved, right? That. And then we have Mike Gilsdorf, who get, again has a history with the organization, and Dan LaFontaine, you know, who we lost last year, mm -hmm. always, always willing to sit down and talk. And he had a long career in veterinary public health. So and he, he also had provided um, a, a written history presentation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, which um, we should make available on our website at some point and or the, this YouTube channel. We certainly can yeah. upload um, some into the community section, into the file section there and um, and, and show people really what uh, what we've accomplished through the years. And you got um, you you got involved with um, with our organization uh, around how long ago? What you said, 2015. You you Try said, to, "Hey, I'm going to take my plan." Um, oh, 2018. Okay, summer 2018. Mm -hmm. 
remember it because that the AVMA was in Denver that year. And okay. I had just sort of taken on the job and it worked out really well because Kelly was in Denver at the AVMA meeting. So we sat down for several hours and that was very valuable for me to help with that transition to just be able to, to sit down and you know kind of look through things with him and see how he did everything. So yeah, so summer, so this will be my fourth year when mm -hmm. comes up this year. Yes, and then um, then uh, Kelly's always taking on another role within the organization. So we have, again, that continuity and um, the information is transferred um, to, to all of us, as well as hopefully um, a deputy that he'll take on to um, when he goes into another position within our organization. I hope he keeps doing that. Um, Mike Gilsdorf is gonna be uh, doing the interview with me um, uh, later on this week too. So that'll be a lot of fun. Um, I, I wanted to, um, to ask you, what do you feel is your role now in public health? as far as teaching, certainly, and then supporting this organization. But do you ever find yourself um, perhaps, uh, you know, reading articles and, and um, maybe advancing a discussion in, in a forum or on social media or, or anything of that nature? Or are you, are you just so busy keeping us rolling? <laughs> Um, I, I would admit that I am not a social media person. Mm -hmm. And so that really isn't a playground that I play in. Um, my family will laugh. They say the only reason I go on Facebook is to look at the pictures that my son puts up when he travels. So oh, sure. Yeah, that's, that's my that's my big social media. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know a lot of people who do that. Yeah, you know, I haven't done um, a lot of that. I mean, little I you know to me my support of public health at this point in time is being the executive director of our organization and then I'm um the alternate uh for our house of delegates so for AVMA yes. for AVMA yeah in those discussions we mm -hmm. are um our representative Kristen Obink and I you know we talk about the votes and things like that and you know anything that comes up that falls within our purview yeah yeah so, yeah. so that's that. really that yeah. that is really another um another point that you bring up is that is the fact that um you can be involved with more than one organization i mean certainly i've been a member and i'm sure you have too of avma for um most if not all of our careers but uh, to, to actually have a position as a delegate, if you could just briefly say what a delegate does, tell us a little bit about that. Well, you know, the, the AVMA um, does have a governing structure and sort of like the House of Representatives, we have a House of Delegates. And so there are two representatives from every state and then, he, I don't know how many allied organizations there are. I want to say about 16. Mm -hmm. Each of those organizations have a vote. And so therefore so, you are a delegate on behalf of our organization. You're an yes. alternate, correct? Yes. And mm -hmm. so, um, 
you know, Kristen is our delegate. So when uh, we have a House of Delegates meeting in January every year, and then we have one in association with the American Veterinary Medical Convention in August. And so we meet twice a year. And um, so things come up, you know, positions that the AVMA takes, and it can vary from compounding, uh, regulations on care of horses. Um, it can be issues of AVMA governance. So all of those things are brought before the House of Delegates for a vote. Um, and so that's, that's the function that the delegate, you know, reviews AVMA business and is prepared to vote on issues. Um, and then there are, you know, various people are in different committees uh, or things like that as a representative. So I was on the Food Safety Advisory Committee because uh, our organization has a, a seat on that committee. Mm -hmm. We have a seat on the Legislative Advisory Committee and the Committee on Antimicrobials. And so those are designated committee seats that our organization holds in addition to the House of Delegates. Which is, which is surprising to me because um, for all those years that I had been getting the journal and gone to AVMA conferences, I had no clue that all of this was happening in the background and that we as veterinarians have the opportunity to get involved at that level and, and be delegates and be part of, of helping to decide what is happening within the AVMA, which, which again reflects the veterinary the veterinary profession at large, and this is um, this is really for me uh, an eye opener, particularly since you had talked me into going in as an alternate for the food safety committee, um, and I'm, I'm happy to do that. No, yes, I'm, it's I'm, a that's a good way to it. learn. It's a good way to learn. It is. <laughs> So, it is. Uh, and, it, and I really enjoyed sitting on that committee. Um, you know, it's a combination of feeling like you kind of have your finger on the pulse of what's going on, but it just gives you, you know, you get to meet people from all over the United States. And, you know, mm -hmm. you, especially after six years, you've gotten to know people and you really. Yes. And, and also. Pottery. Yeah. And, and also um, having those in-person meetings when, when uh, they typically have been able you know occurred other than through the mm -hmm. past couple of years um so this means that you will be going uh to avma uh this uh this summer then it's in pennsylvania philadelphia mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yep well we, we hope to you know we've missed the last two they've become virtual and then the house of delegates meeting that was held in january uh i attended virtually as mm -hmm. well but, uh, Hope to be in Philadelphia, but uh, yeah, I mean the House of Delegates. When you think about it, a lot of it is businessy stuff. But on the other hand, you know, there's a panel on euthanasia, and you know, people look to their organization to set the standard, right? And also, that's where uh, and policy for right, policy all aspects yeah. of veterinary medicine, and and, and um, the and, federal government will come to AVMA as well for further information and understanding of what is occurring in some aspect of animals. It could be anything from uh, our food supply uh, 
all the way to looking at uh, pet food. Yeah, so I'll give you another example. Here in Denver, uh, the last election, there was a ballot initiative because you know how many cities have banned pit bulls. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everybody has different experience. My experience with pit bulls is they were good dogs with bad owners. Mm -hmm. And so you're banning a whole breed, if you want to call it that, you know, American Staffordshire Terriers and their hybrids or whatever, mm -hmm. because of a bad rap. And so all the shelters and things are full of pit bulls. So many. Yeah. Who couldn't adopt them because they lived in a city that wouldn't allow them. Mm -hmm. So uh, there was a ballot initiative on stopping that ban. And I do some work for the League of Women Voters. And so I wrote a kind of a summary for them of the ballot initiative and the pros and cons. Well, where did I go first for positions on pit bull ownership? I went to the AVMA and of course to the American Humane Society and you know other things. But you go to what what was the AVMA's position on that? Let's yeah, and they do put out the position what they call position statements. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah. So again, you know, it has it has um and again, those position statements are uh, are evolved and established based on all these veterinarians who come together as delegates in their committees and they they come up with the wording and they do all the research and so it's a broad it comes from a, a broad base of veterinarians who bring all of their experiences and knowledge together and they're reviewed every five, i think every five years so you know that mm -hmm. oh true yeah so that keeps so that keeps everybody busy Mm-hmm. Yes. So, so yeah. <laughs> what um, uh, what do you see on the horizon? What do you see as upcoming changes, perhaps, that are coming into play for you? Anything? Uh, well, from on a personal standpoint, um, I'm able to do a lot more volunteering so I like gardening so I do a lot of volunteering at the Denver Botanic Gardens and I just started master gardener training so that's a six month oh, I know who to call for questions lots of reading and stuff like that so so yeah I'm kind of doing a little bit of a career shift into more of that garden part um, I recently moved into an older home so I have a lot of home fix-up and home repair things to deal with now and I've got a big garden so I've got so those are things I'm doing personally and um, you know for the organization I feel like this past year has been a year of change with the collaboration that we started though just yeah, coming up with the right um, now podcasts the YouTube channels the new website um, I just attended our student outreach working group meeting last night. So of course, you know, we're looking into how we can better serve our student members. Um, we are giving people more opportunities to present at national conferences from our membership. So that's fun to, um, to see those things happening. You know, it's fun when you feel like you're moving forward with a group of dedicated people. Well, also, you're 
you're putting in uh, some special effort on um, on getting the scholarship established, the Dan LaFontaine scholarship, yeah. having to get into the background and and the inner workings of setting it up financially, pulling that information together so it's all done uh, uh, correctly, and then at, then that's going to be moving forward within <clears throat> the student. Um, outreach, um, correct in that in that working group. That's going to have the um, that that working group's going to have the chance to figure out the ins and outs of how to apply for that scholarship and and how money can be donated to it, and and so on. So um, I'm sh <laughs> I know that that's kept you rather busy because it, it is there's a there's a, a lot there's a devil there's a devil in a lot of details i think that's you know just the day-to-day -day emails and things you get you sometimes you feel like you go down a rabbit hole like the other mm -hmm. is like looking for information for incorporation from like yeah we both knew ago. the answer but we couldn't find the documentation for a while till you did when you i finally <laughs> found it because yeah I'm, i have it now pinned in my file as well so right. we're good yeah, so. but thank you for that. And um, I'm very excited about this, the scholarship, the idea of the scholarship. Um, I remember how important scholarship was for me. Um, I had a little scholarship when I uh, first got into pre-vet at, at, uh, uh, at CSU. And, and I was just, I was so proud of having received it. And, and it was, it was so helpful. And when I think of of how people are struggling nowadays financially with getting through college. I, I'm so delighted and proud that we are putting this together. And I'm hoping to see it grow and, uh, and, and be able to help many students in going into the future. And, um, and we also have um, the website coming up. I do wanna throw in there that right now our, our website um, is kind of old school looking. Uh, we're looking uh, with kind of a uh, something to jazz it up a little bit, make it a little brighter and more modern looking and have uh, just a little bit of bells and whistles, not a whole lot. So that's uh, an endeavor that uh, we hope to accomplish this year too. Um, but really um, just having the, the fact that I could myself, reach out to you. And I, I know you don't have specific hours that you put in, in in your position in our organization, but because I'm texting you, hopefully, at times that are not bothering you. But um, I do appreciate that you've always been extremely supportive and, and answering my questions right away, too. So um, you put in so much time and effort. Thank you very much for that. And is there anything that you would like to add that um, as, as we wind down on this? And remember, this was, an, this was the, a look at another veterinarian's life um, and showing everyone, not just um, uh, other veterinarians and vet students, but also the public, what veterinarians do behind the scenes and other than clinical work. And, um, and, and I'm just wondering, is there, is there any other comment you would like to make 
about veterinary medicine as you look back on on everything that you've accomplished and the the very fascinating twists and turns i i mean starting with going off to china and um i'm i mean you've had you've had just some really unusual things that have presented themselves before you what what is it that comes to mind when you look at like you say look back and say is what highlight was there that you can look back and you can say you're particularly proud of and there were a few things that you've accomplished you know i think you know one of the first things and i, I wouldn't say that i accomplished it but i would say i had probably no so little appreciation that you know almost 50 years down the road that I would still be so proud of the profession. I mean, whenever people say, what do you do? I never have hesitated to be very proud to tell them I'm a veterinarian. And it's interesting, people go, well, you used to be a veterinarian, now you're retired. And I'm like, no, I will always be a veterinarian. It's part of my DNA, mm -hmm. it is. And I think the other part of that is to be able to have done something for 50 years with so many different opportunities. Now, granted, you know, you create these opportunities yourself, but they're there if you look for them. And, you know, I think a lot of professions maybe don't give that much opportunity, right. variety. Um, and two, you know, veterinarians, we are in a, we serve animals and their owners and their people and the food supply. And that's a good feeling to have spent your life in that profession. So. Nicely said.